Awesome. Um, in case you didn't catch it there, uh, one of the things we're committed to as a church is partnering with uh, organizations locally here to help close the opportunity gap. And this year, thanks to a Compassion Project, uh, we have $4,200 for you all. If you're in a life group or a small group and you've adopted a teacher, this is for you to use in creative ways to help support your teacher. And, and we call them mini grants because they only go up to $300, but $300 used creatively can go a long ways. And so we're excited. I think we've gave out our first one this last week uh, to one of our teachers and we have it until it runs out. And so if you're here and you've uh, adopted a teacher, you want information about that, it's on our website or shoot one of us on staff an email and we'll get you that information. Uh, and if you haven't adopted a teacher and you're in a life group or small group, our goal, we wanna have, I think it's like 18 more teachers adopted by the end of the year uh, and we're well on our way, which is awesome, but please consider doing that. All right, cool. Um, by the way, how y'all doing? Good, good. Did anybody stay up to the end of the Badger game last night? Yeah, yeah, okay. So, <laughs> so we might have a few people falling asleep today. That's, that's great. No, I did too, and I was like, it's a mistake, but I can't go to bed. Um, and I should introduce myself. My name is John Anderson. I am uh, one of the pastors on staff here. I work with community development. So Adopted Teacher is one of the programs that I get to work with. Uh, and really kind of to summarize, my day job is trying to help our church move into relational service. And then occasionally I get to come up here and, and teach. And so this is a real treat for me uh, to be with you this morning like this. And I'm excited to go through Genesis 16 with you because it's such a weird passage. In fact, we're, we've got a few weird chapters in a row and I get one of them and it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, so with that said, let me actually start off with a rather strange question. And here's what I want to do. I want this to be participatory, okay? So that means like raise your hand or not or whatever. You can even yell out if you want, all right? We're going to get excited here. Here's the question. How many of you all, be honest with me for a moment, how many of you all, how many fans of reality television do we have in the room? Whoa, like last night it was like, okay, okay, some tentative, uh, kind of, is this a trick question? Um, like most people like some form of reality television. Let me just try to like call that out right now. So in case there's a few of you who don't know, reality television is this whole genre of TV where basically you take real people and uh, you put them in these unique situations and then we the viewer just sit back and watch the drama un unfurl. And most of the time spent being like, I'm so glad I'm not them with a few exceptions of shows where you're like, oh, I could do that. Um, now, because this, this kind of television is so popular, there's now shows about just about every single topic you can imagine. Uh, here's a few examples. Um, from rehabbing houses, shows about losing weight, to a 1990s hip hop singer uh, named Vanilla Ice, who moved to be part of an Amish community. Anybody? Yes, this is so good. This is like a random question 101. Okay, and one of my personal favorites, just because I think I might have a shot, is one called The Whisker Wars. We got a picture of this. This is so good. So this, the premise of the show is just like dudes growing facial hair. And I feel like maybe, maybe I could go for that. Like use what God gives you, right? So nothing here, this could happen. So if I take a sabbatical, just watch for Whisker Wars. Um, now... In a few cases, like reality television is decent entertainment, but oftentimes it's kind of this voyeuristic view into people's somewhat messed up, or in some cases, very messed up lives. And again, we, the viewer, sit back and we're just like, I'm so glad that's not me. Now, today's passage, upon first reading, is going to look a lot like a very dramatic episode of reality television. 
But here's what I think is going to happen as we go below the surface. We're going to observe this characteristic of God that speaks to this inner longing that's in every single one of us in this room. So you all ready for this? All right. Take your Bibles and turn to Genesis 16. Genesis 16. Now, over the last few weeks, or several weeks now, actually, we've been going through this series called Unexpected. And we've been tracking with uh, the story of God calling Abram and his wife Sarai and saying, I'm going to bless you, and through you, I'm going to bless all nations. And, and they're better known later on, they get their names changed. That hasn't happened yet, but they're going to be Abram and Sarah, or Abraham and Sarah, rather. And specifically, the blessings that he's repeatedly uh, confirming with them is that he's going to bless them with land and bless them with offspring beyond what they can count. But where we drop it in the story today, in chapter 16, we're seeing Abram and Sarai, and they are waiting. They're waiting to see God's promises come to be fully fulfilled. All right? So we'll start together. Please read with me. Genesis 16, 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Okay, so I gotta, just, I gotta pause right there, because that very first sentence, that very first line of chapter 1, really sets up the whole dramatic arc of the entire chapter. Now, if you remember, if you've been here with the series or, or you know the story of Genesis at all, you may remember that in Genesis 12, 2, God makes this promise to Abram. These words will be up on the screen. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And then again, in chapter 13, God makes the same promise. He reminds Abram. He says this, I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth. So that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. And then again, in chapter 15, this was from the passage last week, God reminds Abram once again, and he, he says this, A son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. And then he, that's God, took him, that's Abram, outside and said, Look up at the sky. Count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So your offspring shall be. Okay, so we observe right away at the very opening line in this chapter that there's this tension, right? Because God's promise has not yet been fulfilled. Abram and Sarah have been waiting at least now 10 years for God to fulfill his promise. And now Sarah is about 75 years old. And so this tension between God's promise of countless offspring and not having any kids yet is really obvious. And they must be wondering, because I imagine we would be too, where is God when is he going to fulfill his promises? And can anything be done from our end about providing that offspring that God has promised? So with that, here's what happens next. Continue to read with me. But she, that is Sarai, had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan for 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. <laughs> okay, okay, we gotta pause here. Like, what? <laughs> right, like what is happening here? You can't tell me the Bible's boring. Like, remember what I said? This is like an episode of reality television. Like, if this was happening today, we'd be like, Do you, did you see what the neighbors are doing? This is crazy. 
And this, it's so important when we come to stories like this where we pause and, and, and remember a couple things. One is that the Bible is not written to us, but it's written for us. And so the original audience uh, was many, many centuries ago. And the author did not have 21st century Midwestern Americans in mind when telling this story. And so we're in this position where we're like the foreigners, or I'm sorry, we're like outsiders looking in on this foreign culture. And often what happens when, when foreign, or people look in on a foreign culture is they observe it and, and a few things happen where they're like, that is just weird. Or sometimes even more judgment comes in where you're like, that's wrong. But we have to be so careful to jump to those conclusions and really ask the question, what is happening in this story? Now, as I mentioned uh, right at the beginning, Sarah is now 75 years old and without a child. And in this cultural context, that was a really, really big deal. Because a woman's success was perceived to the degree of which she could have kids. And she hasn't had any. And then on top of that, God has promised her husband, Abram, countless descendants. And yet she hasn't yet provided an heir. And so we can imagine that Sarah is experiencing great shame at this point in her life. And so she takes matters into her own hands to make sure that they're going to have an offspring. And, and this is so important we catch this here, because this is not what we think of here in our cultural context. But what she does here is totally normal and socially acceptable in her day. And so she pl- plans to continue her family through her slave, Hagar. Again, we like see this and we're like, that's just weird. But in their cultural context, this was a totally normal practice and seen as totally acceptable. But while it was culturally normal, there's a hint in verse 2 that kind of points us to the fact that her decision came out of this frustration with God. That, that she's observing his apparent absence and she becomes impatient and wants to control the situation. And it's also important here um, to remember that Aram doesn't get off the hook either. Right? Like he goes along rather passively, I would say, with this decision. He agrees to it and then he's the one who actually sleeps with Hagar. And so this tension, tension, this drama is building. And here's what happens next. Verse 5. Then she, that's Hagar, knew she was pregnant, so she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now she knows she is pregnant, and she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. Okay, so on some level, Sarai's plan has worked, right? Now Abram is going to have this offspring, and that was the planned part. But the unplanned part, but probably as we, like, as observers of this story are not surprised by this, there's all this resulting human tension and drama and brokenness. And so what's happening is Hagar becomes a second wife, and she starts to mistreat Sarah because she's pregnant and Sarah's not, and so it puts her in a position of power and authority. But in their cultural context, Hagar is overstepping the bounds of their relationship. So what she's doing is inappropriate. And so Sarah, I love this, comes to Abram and she's like, this is your fault. <laughs> and Abram, again, does not show great leadership or responsibility in this. His response is like, hey, do with her whatever you want. Right? It's not a shining moment for Sarah and Abram. And so what does Sarah do? She, she goes back and she starts to mistreat Hagar. 
And there's this word for mistreat is powerful because it's the same word that's later used to describe how the Egyptians mistreat the slaves, in, uh, the Israelite slaves in Egypt. And so the, the abuse is so bad that Hagar runs away. And so at this point in the story, here's what appears to be happening, right? Is that instead of seeing God's promises starting to be fulfilled, what we see instead is broken relationships and pain and suffering. And we might be wondering, okay, like, hey, where is God in this story? So let's read together. Verse 7. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael which means God hears. For the Lord has heard your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility towards all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. And that is why the well was called Bir Lahai Roy and is still there between Kadesh and Bered. Okay, so in these last few verses, we really see the climax of this story. So we can tell from the text, based on the direction she's going, that it's very likely that Hagar is going back to Egypt, which is where she's from, so she's probably going back home. But on her way, the angel of the Lord stops her and calls her out by name. And then the angel of the Lord blesses her with a similar blessing to Abram's promise, where he, he promised that her descendants will be too numerous to count. And then the most remarkable thing happens, and this is so easy for us to miss, that something happens here that doesn't happen in the rest of all of the Bible, where a person gives God a name. And when someone gave someone a name, that was a, a, a thing of prestige and power. And the person who gave God a name is not just any person, it's a woman. It's a slave. It's a foreigner. Or in other words, an unexpected person. And then the angel of the Lord says to Hagar, or what he says to Hagar, rather, in verses uh, 11 and 12, when we read that, we probably don't think that is like a standard blessing. But we can tell based on Hagar's response that she's receiving it as good news. And so this interaction between God and Hagar, this is so important because it reveals a characteristic of God. The God that Hagar met today is the God who saw her and moved towards her with grace and with compassion when she was at her most vulnerable. And really throughout all of Scripture, this is a characteristic that we see repeatedly about who God is. We see a God who sees all people for who they are in their brokenness and in their mess, who are forgotten and vulnerable, who are dirty and left on the margins. And God moves towards them with great love and compassion. And it's not because they finally get their act together, right? As we see Hagar in the story, she didn't like repent. She's not even praying out to God. She's just in misery. She didn't finally become a good person and then God moves towards her. No, God moved towards her and throughout other people throughout scripture with grace. 
with a good gift that's not deserved. And then Genesis 16 bookends this way, with the birth of a son. Now remember in verse 1, right, Sarah is, is barren and unable to have children. And then the final verse reads like this, verse 15. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. And that's how it ends. And so we, as the observer, as the reader, are left with a few questions as this chapter ends. One uh, is probably like, okay, how's the relationship now with Sarah and Hagar? Have they repaired that? Where is that at? What's going to happen? Another question is, is Ishmael really the promised heir? Is that the way that God is going to provide and create countless descendants? Is it going to come through Ishmael? If not, who is it going to come? Or how's that going to happen? Like, this is going to take a miracle. And here's the deal. Those questions will be resolved in the next few chapters. So come back. <laughs> or keep reading the Bible. <laughs> all right. But what does this all have to do with us today? Well, I think there's actually a lot of ways that this text intersects with our lives today. Because of the God of the Bible, the God of today is a God who truly sees us in our vulnerability and despite, despite our mess and our brokenness, loves us by grace. Because in him, and this is kind of the one line that I hope you walk away with today, in him we are fully seen and fully loved. Now, I would argue that every single person in this room, every person who's watching online, in fact, every person you'll ever interact with shares the same deep longing, and it's this. We long desperately as human beings to be fully seen for who we are and fully loved. But that's kind of a scary thing, right? I love how uh, Tim Keller unpacks it this way. Here's a quote from one of his books. He writes this. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. Let me just pause there. Some of you guys, you probably know people like this who are like, I love you, man. You're like, cool, but you don't know me. Right? And it's kind, of, it's kind of nice, and you're like, keep saying that, but mm, it's just, it doesn't mean that much. But then the, the quote goes on to say this, to be known and not loved is our greatest fear. And this, to me, is, is reflected mostly on social media, or honestly, even how we present ourselves sometimes when we gather on the weekends. Right? We don't want to put out our true selves, because if we did, we're scared that that wouldn't be accepted, that wouldn't be received well, and that we would be hurt. And so we're afraid of that. But then the the quote continues. It says this, But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It's what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. Uh, Now, in my life, probably more than any other human relationship, Uh, I've experienced being seen and loved uh, in my relationship with my wife, Mary. And I I remember early on in dating where, you know, when you're dating and you're hanging out a lot together and and you start to open up a little bit more and and suddenly, whether you want to or not, like you start to reveal some of your flaws and and foibles and uh, they just come out, right? Because you just spend time together. And I remember there was times when we were dating where one of these or two or many of these would be revealed. And I, I was like legitimately surprised. I was like, man, I can't believe she still likes me so much. 
And maybe, maybe one example to kind of highlight that is when, uh, when somewhere along the way she discovered um, my near obsession with always getting the best deal. This is not my best characteristic, but it is one of mine. And, um, and this was probably highlighted early on when, um, oh, this is so embarrassing to share, but I have her permission and whatever. So uh, early on when we were dating, and I would insist when we go to Subway that we would get a foot-long sub and split it versus getting two six inches, and that way we saved like 70 cents. <laughs> and I just want to say publicly, I was wrong. That was dumb. And I'm sorry. <laughs> but really, in, in, in no other relationship I, have I experienced more of that safety of being a no, seen for who I really am and loved despite my many obvious flaws. And yet, even in marriage, or even in, with a best friend, or a sibling, or a parent, we never can fully experience that, that fulfillment of being fully seen and fully loved for who we are. Right? Because in any human relationship, we know this, right? In any human relationship, we hurt one another. Like we can't love each other perfectly as much as we desperately want to. Only, only in Christ can we be fully seen and fully loved. Now here's an, an important truth. And I hope sticks with you. It's my story and your story is Hagar's story. Every single one of us was incredibly vulnerable in our brokenness. And we were lost apart from Christ. And the story is the same. He came to us. And he took on vulnerability as a choice and died upon the cross and then rose again so that we might have new life and hope in him. And it made it possible for us to be fully seen and fully loved, which speaks to this deep longing. And not, not because we finally got our act together, right? Not because we started going to church enough, not because we started, we cleaned up the outside, and not because we looked good enough. It was because of grace. It's a good gift for every single, it's a level playing field. Every single one of us get it because of grace. Not because we deserve it, but as a good gift that's not deserved. And when we live in light of that truth, I think it leads to a couple different life-transforming outcomes that I want to touch on briefly. Uh, the first one, R.D. talked about a little bit last week when he talked about being anchored. When we live in light of the truth that in Christ we are fully known, fully seen, and fully loved, we start to live with this inner confidence that transforms us. We become the kind of people where we just, because of this confidence of being loved and seen and loved by Christ, we just become people who are full of joy and full of kindness and gentleness and peace, not fear, but hope, generosity. And it just kind of pours out of us as this overflow of this confidence found in this unconditional love. Because we know that our identity is not based on what we produce or how much we get done or how good we are, but it's based solely and fully on the fact that we are rooted and grounded in God's love for us, his unconditional, unfathomable love for us. Now, I was trying to uh, picture, like, what might that confidence look like? Like, is there an illustration that might help? And um, I came up with this. I, I hope it's helpful. Um, what I want you to do is just for a moment, take a, a moment and picture in your own mind that you are about to, um, you're about to apply for your dream job, 
Okay, so try to picture what that might be because we probably all have different dream jobs. So just imagine that you have the opportunity to apply for your dream job. But here's the problem. So are hundreds of other people. And you have no idea if you have an inside track or not or if you're more qualified than others. You just really want this thing. And so you get ready and you actually get an interview, which is really exciting. And so you go uh, to your interview and you walk in and it's one of those long halls where everybody who's like going before you and after you is all sitting waiting. And you're intimidated, right? Because they all look super professional. They look prepared. They look calm, which makes you nervous. And you sit down. And um, finally, it's your turn to have your interview. And so you get up and you're, you're called uh, to come on in next. And just before you go in the interview, the CEO comes out to greet you and whispers in your ear, hey, I just want you to know, you got the job. Like you still have to interview, but it's yours. And there's really nothing you can do to lose it. So have a great interview. Can you imagine like the confidence that you'd have going into that room? That's what it's like having this confidence rooted in Christ's love for you. As we go into any situation in life, it's like the CEO whispering and saying, hey, you got it. There's nothing you can do to lose it. I love how Paul writes about this assurance in Romans 8, 38 and 39. He writes this. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen, right? This is an amazingly encouraging and stabilizing truth because in Christ, we are fully seen and fully loved and it produces this inner confidence inside of us. Now, if you've been following Christ for probably more than, you know, a couple days or so, you probably know experientially now that it can be really easy to forget that truth. Because there's all these different messages and distractions and the busyness of life can drown out some of the truths of Scripture and the truths of our reality in God. And so this is why it's so important, so, so important, that we remain in Christ-centered community. And this is good, right? This is good that we're gathering here today like this. Um, in this case, I don't know that this is what I'm describing as Christ-centered community. I think it's more like when you're in circles, looking at each other in the face and saying, hey, do you remember you are fully seen and fully loved. I see what's happening. Is I see why that's helping you forget, but I just want to remind you. And it's in that kind of community that we remember. And also that we meditate, that we chew on, that we memorize, that we internalize scriptural truths that remind us of this truth, that we are fully seen and fully loved. And secondly, I think there's another outcome of this. So when we live in light of being fully seen and fully loved, it produces the second outcome, and it's this. It's an outward life of reflecting God's character of seeing and loving the most vulnerable. Let me just say this again. When we live in light of the fact that we are fully seen and fully loved, we begin to have this outward expression where we reflect God's character of fully seeing and loving those who are most vulnerable around us. So there's this inner stability and then also this outward expression. Because what happens is as we follow Christ, we start to take on the thoughts and the actions that make us look more and more like Jesus, right? These are, this is what it means to be a disciple in the most basic sense. And so we need to ask ourselves another question. Who 
are the most vulnerable around us? And what does it mean to see and love others? So I just want to encourage you for a second, if you didn't already, just picture in your mind again, when I say who are the most vulnerable, who comes to mind for you? Who do you think of in our around the world? Who do you see as the most vulnerable? Now in our community and around the world, the most vulnerable include single moms and their kids who live in unsafe or, or unaffordable housing. It's families around the world who have no idea where their next meal is going to come from. It's millions of kids in other countries and in our own backyard for really complex reasons that don't have the opportunity for a great education. It's those who are forgotten and unseen and ignored, who are discarded as somehow less than human. There's millions of those kinds of people on this planet. And tragically, Tragically, in our own community here in Dane County, most of those who are the most vulnerable are African-American, Latino, and other minority groups. And we have the opportunity to reflect the love of Christ in our community and around the world when we together care passionately and without judgment for those who are the most vulnerable. Because in God's economy, they are us, and we are them. And so, what does it mean to really see the most vulnerable? Well, to answer that, I think what's helpful for me is just to consider, like, what does it mean for somebody to see me, right? Like, how do I, how do I feel like I've been seen by somebody else? And, and I think there's a few basic things. I think um, they know my name. They know a little bit about my family. We've spent time together. They know basic facts about me. Like, for example, um, and this is very important if you're taking notes. My favorite is chocolate peanut butter from uh, Babcock. So write that down. I don't see many of you writing. All right. <laughs> but basically, it's just like somebody needs to be in a relationship with me, right? And this is the same. In the same way, for us to really see and love those who are most vulnerable, we need to be in relationship. It's not an issue or a cause or a project or something that somebody else needs to take care of. It's human beings that we need to come to know as friends, as family, as other people in our community. And really, this is the heart behind our 11 different uh, projects or different partnerships here at Door Creek, whether it be local, national, or global. All of them share in common the fact that they exist to try to help us as a church move into relational service. And, and honestly, as I was preparing to, this is too good to be true, to like fit my programming and my job into this text. But honestly, I think this is what I'm seeing scripture say. And, and this is the heart behind why we do what we do. It's grounded. It's not like programming to add busyness to your life. It's try to help promote being disciples and to help aid you in that process as much as we possibly can. And one way that I'm trying to reflect Christ in this area in my life is that I uh, volunteer as a big in our community. And it's part of the Big Brother, Big Sister program, and this is a national program. And we have a great chapter here in, uh, in Madison and in Dane County. And so for me, what that looks like is uh, on Monday afternoons at about 4 o'clock every week, uh, at least every week during the school year, I get to hang out with this awesome fourth grader. And uh, he's this cool little dude. And um, together, he teaches me about um, the latest video games, because I'm, like, super out of touch. 
I used to be a youth pastor, and I was always up on like youth um, culture, and now I have no clue. And so he's like, dude, really? You've never heard of? And he's playing, and I'm like, no, I'm old. Um, and then we, we play basketball, and uh, this is another embarrassing revelation about me, is I try, because I'm pretty com- competitive, and I lose, because I'm really bad at basketball. Um, and then, you know, in his life, like, I encourage him to get his homework done and try to just learn a little bit about his family and his life and, and just care for him in, in small ways in our limited time together. And what I've benefited, what I've learned in the, in the context of that relationship is that life transformation is not this linear process, right? It's not always up and to the right. And I've been reminded that the most vulnerable are people with names and stories and have amazing gifts and that this young man bears the image of God. Do you a question, church? Are you in relationship with the most vulnerable here in our own community or around the world? And I don't want that to be like a guilt-inducing question. Really what I wanted to do is an offer because we would love to help you move into a relationship with those who are the most vulnerable. And here's just a few ideas to think about. Consider going on a service trip to one of our national or global partners. We want to have a number of trips throughout the year. We'd love for you to be part of one. I think our next one coming up is in January to New Orleans. We'd love to have people part of those teams. Become a big. Be a mentor to a little and spend time with them. It's awesome, trust me. Or serve in one of our three schools. We have different opportunities that kind of fit your time and talents and gifts, and we will help you try to connect. Or maybe, maybe God has called you path a different way of connecting with the most vulnerable. And if that's the case, I just want to say, well done. Applaud that. You chase after what God's calling you to do, and we just want to encourage you in that process. But more and more, my hope is, is that we would be the kind of place, the kind of people where we are in relationship with the most vulnerable. And in that relationship that we would both experience and reflect the grace of God. Because the God that we gather today to worship is the same God of Abram, the God of Sarai, the God of Hagar. And God does not change. God still sees us fully and loves us fully in this place. And so may we be the kind of people who live in light of that truth and then may we reflect God's love for the most vulnerable around us. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you that you went from being on the throne to coming down and allowing yourself to be vulnerable for us to live and to die so that we might have new life and hope in you. And I pray that that love would be rooted in our hearts, in our guts, that, that out of that place, it would just be an overflow of our lives, that we have this great confidence leaving here today and throughout this week and the coming months and years. And then, out of that confidence, help us to reflect your character to the world. Help us to be people who both see and love without judgment those who are the most vulnerable around us in our own backyard and around the world. And we just pray that that would be a reflection of your beauty and your love and your glory to your name. Amen.